From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. She came to Colorado from Singapore and channels the stories of earlier immigrants. I'm not sure channel is the right word. I feel more like a ghost whisperer. And I think this is true for a lot of the stories I write about the Chinese in the West. These people were ghosts and their stories were lost. I try to listen to what they might be trying to say, and then I try to write them. We chose author Tiao Lim Go's book, Western Journeys, for our series Turn the Page. I definitely grew up in a space where I was taught to be silent and kind of be invisible. But the West changed her. Because this place gave me something to write about, something to start not just exploring place, but also exploring language used to describe the place. I'm Diane Pelez, and we donated our car to Colorado Public Radio. It was the car that both of my kids learned how to drive on. When it came time to get rid of the car because it made no more sense to repair it again, we took a vote and we decided to donate it to CPR. The process was really easy. We had to have our title, which we signed over, and the tow truck came and took it away. It's easy to donate your car at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Brian Warner. What does it mean for an immigrant to be at home? A timely question that Denver writer Tiao Lim Go asks in her new book, Western Journeys. It's a collection of essays. They reflect on her own immigration story and the journeys of Chinese immigrants who came to the U.S. before her. They were often met with hatred, even death. Go also shares in exquisite prose her travels around the West. We chose Western Journeys for our series, Turn the Page, where we invite you to read along with us and then connect with the author. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. Chiao Lim Go answered my questions and our audiences, and we share that with you today. Tiao, thank you for being with us. Well, thanks for having me. I'd love to have you finish the paragraph that begins with that line. What does it mean for an immigrant to be at home? Home, we are taught, is about our origins. It is where we are born and raised. It is a sense of belonging that may be true for many people, but it has also been weaponized against immigrants. For if home is where you are born, then to migrate is to never be at home, to never have stakes. And if you have never set down meaningful roots, then it becomes easy to justify removing you. Go home, we yell at people we think do not belong, who don't look like us, even if this is where they have lived for decades, even if they were born here. Immigration is always about race. You can't tell a person's legal status just by looking at them, but you can tell if they belong to a targeted race. Between 1882 and 1943, when the Chinese Exclusion Act was in place, all Chinese people, including U.S. citizens, had to carry papers to prove that they were legally in the country. Similarly, all Chinese people at the ports of entry had to make sure they had the right documents to land, 
including affidavits from white associates, even if they were U.S. citizens. The color of their skin was enough to question the validity of their papers, their claims to America as home. The Chinese Exclusion Act looms large in this book and in an earlier one you wrote called Islanders. It was about poetry found at Angel Island in San Francisco. I guess, first off, would you remind us who wrote that poetry and what they were doing at Angel Island? And I ask this because it's so fundamental to this second book, Western Journeys. Mm -hmm. So the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed in 1882. And between 1910 to 1940, the Chinese immigrants who came to the U.S. via San Francisco were detained at Angel Island whilst their immigration papers were processed. In a way, this was like a Western version of Ellis Island. Correct. Or you could say it's the other Alcatraz, which is the other island in the San Francisco Bay. Mm. And to cut a very long story short... Whilst they were trying to prove that they were eligible to land, which is usually that they were immediate family members of Chinese who are already in the U.S., they stayed in Angel Island for the shortest is usually around two weeks. Okay. And if they, were, if they failed the interviews and appealed their deportation, they could be there for months, or I think the longest is, I think, two years. Two years. That's why you might refer to it as another Alcatraz, because this became a prison in some ways for people. Correct. And some of them started writing poems on the walls. So most of the poems on the walls that we have on record were written by the men. There were no records of what the women might have said. So in my first book, Islanders, I imagine what they might have said. You imagined that poetry. Mm -hmm. Did you feel like a channel in some ways? writing what you imagined their poetry to be? I'm not sure channel is the right word. I feel more like a, a ghost whisperer. A ghost whisperer. Oh. And I think this is true for a lot of the stories I write about the Chinese in the West. Is I feel like that these people were ghosts and their stories were lost. I try to listen to what they might be trying to say, and then I try to write them. I want to talk about your own immigration story. You came to the U.S. at 19 from Singapore. And I was struck, Tiao, by how much immigration lotteries played into you and your family's fate. So tell us about the lotteries that you had to clear, that I believe your husband had to clear. Yes. Well, first of all, I just want to say that I have used up a lifetime's worth of luck. I have not won the Powerball. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> this is immigration luck. Yes. Uh-huh. But, you know, luck in general. Yeah. Um, so I, I came as a college student, but then I stayed on to work as a professional. And the professional work visa is the H-1B. So in 2004, President Bush reduced the cap on the H-1B from 195000 to 65000 in a year. A dramatic cut, more than 50%. Yes, and this was during a time when the economy was good. It wasn't even like employment was shrinking. And so when I applied in 2006, there were three times as many applications as available visas. And the USCIS, which is the Immigration Service, held a lottery to determine which applications they would review. And I did not win the lottery that year, 
But as a Singapore citizen, I was eligible for a special class of visas called the H-1B one. Uh-huh. And it's, it's under a free trade agreement with Singapore. The catch was that I could not apply for a green card under the H-1B one. It was, it was considered a non-immigrant visa. And I reapplied for the H-1B every year, and I finally won it in 2009. And I ended up applying for a green card through marriage to a U.S. citizen. So my husband's also an immigrant, but he won the diversity visa green card lottery, which is meant for countries with low rates of immigration to the U.S. And so after two years, I had to prove to the immigration offices that I was still legitimately married. How was that to prove? You know, for me, it's easy Uh because, you know, I was legitimately married. I had paperwork to prove it. You know, we bought a house, you know, things like that. But I can also see how, you know, if someone was in an abusive marriage, that could be really difficult because, um, well, first of all, they might feel that they have to stay for that two-year period. That's one example. And if you're not married at the end of that two-year period, you still can get the conditions removed, but it's a much more difficult process. Mm -hmm. So you're saying that there are people stuck in abusive relationships to meet this time criteria. Correct. Tell us about the day your husband proposed, would you? (laughs) Well, it was the day of his citizenship test. The day of his citizenship test. Yes, and so I said, did you pass? And he had. Yeah, he did. I mean, it's, I will put it this way about, about the citizenship test, you know, not everyone is well-educated. Not everyone speaks good English. And I understand that. But when you're well-educated, it's, it's an easy test. I knew this is where I needed to be, you write of the Denver area and the nearby mountains when you arrived here. How did you know this was the place you needed to be, Tiao? I mean, to be honest, the world works in mysterious ways. And it was kind of an intuition but I also know that out here in the West, with you know all the mountains and deserts and all the majestic landscapes, there's something about the scale of this place that feels that another world, another self is possible, mm. which is I also know has been milked by every Western that was ever made. <laughs> yes, that's a very Western, as in the Western film yes, kind of correct. spirit. Yeah, but you know there is something to it. It was unlike. A landscape that you had known before. Yeah, correct. Uh-huh. Because I grew up in Singapore, which, well, first of all, is extremely urban. But even in a non, the non-urban parts, it's, you know, flat. It's, I mean, it's a beautiful landscape in a different way. But it's a lot of flatlands and islands and extremely hot and humid. You write, the Chinese language was the bane of my school years. In Singapore, where I grew up, each student is required to learn their mother tongue as their second language. And when I came to America at 19, I was glad to be freed of the language. I tend to dissociate around Chinese. Why do you think that is? Well, I studied it for 12 years, and it was easily my worst subject in school. Uh And the way the Singapore education system is structured is that even if you don't do well in what we call the mother tongue language, which for me is Chinese, it drags down all your scores if you excel in everything else. So there's already that annoyance level. And and I guess it just wasn't taught well because, you know, we were taught the language as a collection of phrases to be memorized versus having a conversation. Mm -hmm. And so it's always felt more like an academic subject than a part of my identity. Mm -hmm. 
So at this point, I can order food in the restaurant, okay. which is the important stuff. <laughs> I would say this too when I encountered the Angel Island poems. Yes. I couldn't read them. I could identify a few words as there's the boat and the sun, you know, things like that. Those were obviously in Chinese. Yeah, yes. yeah, they were in Chinese. But I could feel them in my bones. I could feel their rhythms, even though I didn't know what they actually said. I don't know how else to explain it, but I guess something has internalized. Mm-hmm. In terms of research, you know, I have not really dealt with untranslated Chinese sources at this point, though with respect to Chinese in the American West, there's not a lot of untranslated. I mean, there are a few Chinese sources that a lot of it has been translated. Translated, okay. But um, some good stories here about my relationship with Chinese language. Yes, I'd like to hear them. So recently, my great aunt, who's my grandmother's sister, sent me a story that she wrote in Chinese. And she knows English because she translated Steinbeck and Nabokov and Dostoevsky. But she's more comfortable in Chinese. Here's the thing. It was about my grandmother's high school boyfriend. Oh. So I had to read it. Yes. And so I, I hit copy, paste into Google Translate. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the translation wasn't perfect. There was definitely one point I was like, this didn't make any sense. And so I went back to the Chinese and I could see enough of it. And I'm like, okay, this is what it actually said. Was it a good relationship? Was it a juicy story? It's a juicy story. It will be the the, the next uh, soap opera that I write. Okay. <laughs> Based on your own extended family's experience. Correct. Well, on your Facebook page recently, Tiao, you wrote, if you take a map of the American West and throw a dart, chances are a Chinese community once lived there. Chinese immigrants really helped build the West through the railroad. And yet, other Americans expressed such hatred towards them. Can you elaborate on why? I think there were two parts to it. So the first major influx of Chinese were to build the Transcontinental Railroad. About 15,000 to 20,000 Chinese laborers altogether. And I think there are two things to it. One is that a lot of the white people saw the Chinese as different. Like, they spoke a different language. They had different customs. And it just felt like the other, there was a lot of hostility for it. The other thing was that they were also paid less than the white workers on the Central Pacific. For the same work. They were paid less and made to do the harder, more dangerous work. Uh-huh. And so they were seen as economic competition, which was made worse when the railroad was completed in 1869 because there were all these Chinese who were out of work mm-hmm. as well as white workers who were out of work. There was 69, 1873, was, there was a big bank panic that caused a major recession. So that would have created some economic unease. Yes, correct. And the natural blaming of another person, the scapegoating mm-hmm. for your own lot. Correct. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing I find that why I think this is not purely economic is because they started accusing you know, Chinese women as immoral women who corrupted American families. So that, it was, that's right. The, yeah. A different law mm-hmm. meant, in effect, quoting you here, that all Chinese immigrant women had to prove their virtue at the U.S. consulate in Hong Kong and again at their port of entry, usually San Francisco. What was this virtue proof? So this has to do with the 1875 Page Act. So 1882 was Chinese exclusion. Yeah. 1875, that's seven years before 
is the Page Act. And that banned the entry of Chinese indentured laborers and prostitutes. Most of the Chinese immigrants in the U.S. were young men. Some of them had wives at home, but just due to both U.S. and Chinese culture, most of the women didn't travel. And so it was a bachelor society. Bachelor society, what you get? Demand for prostitutes. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the Chinese women in the sex trade, they were either kidnapped or tricked into fake marriages to come over to the U.S., so there was a, a legitimate problem. With prostitution. Mm -hmm. And it's not just prostitution, but like indentured prostitution. Yes, human trafficking, what we might call human trafficking today. Correct. And so in 1875, Congress passed the Page Act, which banned the entry of prostitutes. But then there's the question of how do you determine if a woman's a prostitute? The solution was to interview them about their sex lives. And you must remember, it's, it's embarrassing now, but imagine in 1800s. Yeah. And the idea was to prove your virtue in that interview. Correct. So they were asked intimate questions about their sex lives. And if immigration officers have reason to think that the women have had sex outside of marriage, she's deemed immoral and likely a prostitute. Of course, as any teenager knows, this is easy to fudge. Tiao, I have to think about the people who might have spent months and years at a place like Angel Island, mm -hmm. whose family back in China had such high hopes for their immigration, for their success in this country, mm -hmm. but who were turned away. And I believe there were suicides. There were people that were so despondent and not being able to get into the country. Correct. Talk a little bit about that. So... There was a few historians on Angel Island who either did oral history interviews with former detainees or they looked at records. And there were at least two women and a, probably a handful of men who, who killed themselves instead of being deported. But what happened is that it cost money to come to the U.S. Mm -hmm. So a lot of families would save up and some of them just spend all their savings. Some of them borrow money from the loan sharks so that they could send one person to the U.S. to try to, to make it rich. In uh, Chinese, you know, the word for California translates into Golden Mountain. That tells you what they thought of California. Something of a gold rush. Correct. Yeah. So failing to pass the interrogations at Angel Island meant bringing shame to the family, mean letting down the family. And for some, it was too much to bear. And so they did, you know, what you would think is the unthinkable. You write, this is not my story in the sense that I am not descended from these pioneer Chinese. But I see now that they have made it possible for newcomers like me to live in the American West. How so? Okay, first of all, in a very literal space, they built the railroads that opened the West. Yes, <laughs> to, right. That allowed you even to be here. To, to, yes, and, to, and me to be here for that matter. Yeah, exactly. But I think they also paved the way for Chinese people to live in the U.S., to be part of this society, part of this culture. And yes, they were excluded for many years, but it's not like they were not here. They continued to live here. They continued to build their own communities, to build their own institutions, and just made it kind of like, I wouldn't say normalize is the right word, mm. but um, just made it part of this whole larger society. Do you yeah. feel indebted to them then? I'm not sure if debt is the right word. Uh -huh. 
But I definitely feel this, there's a connection of my presence here and their presence here, you know, 150 years or so ago. Oh, back to this idea of ghosts that you yeah. said earlier. Oh, yeah. uh-huh. Would you tell us about the 1898 U.S. Supreme Court case, United States versus Wong Kim Ark? I was really grateful to learn about this in your book, Western Journeys. Yes. So Wong Kim Ark was a Chinese man who was born in San Francisco to Chinese immigrant parents in 1873. Remember, Exclusion Act was 1882. Yes. The other thing that the Exclusion Act did was to deny all Chinese the right to U.S. citizenship. That's a key part of this conversation. Okay. So in 1895, Wong Kim Ark was denied re-entry to the U.S. and held on steamships off the coast of San Francisco for five months. Five months? Correct. So under the Citizenship Clause of the 14th Amendment, by virtue of his birth on U.S. soil, he would be automatically conferred birthright citizenship. But as I just mentioned, under the Chinese exclusion laws, all Chinese people were considered ineligible for U.S. citizenship. And so immigration officers in 1895, which is, you know, a decade after the Exclusion Act, Mm -hmm. argued that Wong, as a child of Chinese immigrants, was a Chinese subject, even though he was born in the U.S. That that somehow superseded birthright citizenship. Correct. That was the immigration officer's argument. And so he had all the contacts and stuff. He hired lawyers. He fought back. And the case went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court actually ruled in, in Wong's favor. And it was a landmark case that affirmed birthright citizenship in the U.S. Mm-hmm. I knew about the anti-Chinese riots in Denver mm-hmm. in 1880. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, they recently removed an old marker that told a pretty biased story of that mm-hmm. event. Plans are to mount a new one that's more historically accurate. But another place you visit was new to me. I'd like to hear more about your journey to Rock Springs, Wyoming. That chapter opens with, I am not one who sees ghosts, but the first time I drove through Rock Springs, I had a sense that the area was haunted. So I will say the first time I drove through Rock Springs, I was just rushing through on the way to Yellowstone. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And it's just kind of like, huh, this is weird place over here. And then many years later, I started researching, you know, Chinese histories of the West. What I learned was that one of the largest Chinese massacres happened in Rock Springs. It's September 2nd, 1885. White coal miners in Rock Springs rioted. They murdered at least 28 Chinese men and ran the rest of the Chinese out of town at gunpoint. Was there much of that history to see and to feel in Rock Springs? The museum has exhibits about it and information about it. And I was asking around the archives and they have jail records, arrest records. Although I think that's in Green River, which is like a little bit down I-80. So it's one of those things that if you go to Rock Springs and you've never been there and you don't know what you're looking for, Mm -hmm. it might not be immediately apparent. But if you know what you're looking for, you can find it. And what happened there was that The Union Pacific owned the coal mines in Rock Springs. They built the Transcontinental Railroad there for the exact reason that they could access the mines. And in 1875, so that's 10 years before the massacre, they brought in Chinese miners to break a strike. And so that stirred the outright hatred. 
And that would have just been a kind of seething pot for a while. Yes. And then it ended with murder. Yes. And what happened that day? It, it seemed like a minor argument. Like two white miners and two Chinese miners, they, were, they had a misunderstanding over who had the right to work in a particular room. But because of all the racial tensions around it, as well as the labor tensions around it, because this was a time when the Union Pacific was in financial trouble. So to try and reduce their financial trouble, they cut wages and, you know, did many terrible labor practices. And so they got fighting. One of the Chinese men got stabbed in the skull. And the white miners walked off the job, went home for their weapons, and then marched on Chinatown. It occurs to me that it's such a refrain in history that workers are pitted against each other. Yes. And that means their anger, their righteous anger, is not directed to the overlords, the mm-hmm. corporations that are actually responsible for mm-hmm. the conditions that they work in. Do you think that's true? I think that's true. And, you know, you could say there are probably some people who identify with the overlords, but I also would say that other workers are easier targets to find than the overlords. Yeah. And so it's easier to take it out on them because they're right there working next to you versus somebody in New York or Boston, you know, making decisions via telegram. One more instance of Chinese immigrants being scapegoated. Mm -hmm. Carol in Denver asks, Tiao, given your difficult relationship with language when it was Chinese, and you said that was based on how it was taught, can you speak to your relationship with English, which is your first language, and writing in it? To be honest, I failed both literature and history in eighth grade. Okay. <laughs> English literature, just for the record. I take comfort in the fact that you, did you say you failed yeah. English lit? English lit and history. And history. Yeah. Which, of course, now are so infused in everything you mm. do. Yeah, I, I was a math major as an undergrad uh-huh. as a result. Do I recall you're an accountant by day? Public finance, but yes. Public I, finance. I, I deal with numbers by day. And words by weekend and night. Correct. Mm-hmm. What is the difference between now and then? Tell me about the transformation between the Tiao <laughs> that failed and the Tiao that now is publishing books and astonishing readers. First of all, I think I'm, I'm in a space where I can kind of express myself without fear of retribution. I don't know if that's the right word, but I definitely grew up in a space where I was taught to be silent Hmm. and kind of be invisible. And so I didn't really have the resources to even describe to myself what's going on. Hmm. Like, you know, it's just a general everyday thing. But now I'm in a much better space. Or I could argue, like I said earlier, I was coming to the American West. Mm, that this place helped transform your relationship. Because this place gave me something to write about, something to start not just exploring place, but also exploring language used to describe the place. Because if you are in awe of a mountain, mm-hmm. you long to describe it as specifically and accurately as possible. Yes. I love that idea. But, you know, this history you have of needing to keep silent Mm -hmm. 
that no doubt influenced you as a writer. Because you say in Western Journeys that you have struggled to even think of yourself as a writer. Are you good enough? Mm-hmm. How do you see yourself today? What's your relationship to the term writer or author? Well, first of all, you have to remember, I'm, I'm a math major and accountant by trade. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, I definitely, I would say every writer has insecurities. And definitely every beginning writer, because you're like, can you do this? Yeah. Can I do this? Is this something I can pursue? And right now, I'm three books in. I have one more manuscript that is pretty close and a few other projects in the works. I've come to a place where I feel that if I have an idea, I can work on it. I can, I can trust the process. I think that's the most important thing, which when I first started, I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea where I was even like, trying to end up. And so there was a lot of anxiety about mm-hmm. around that. But now I feel that I still don't know where I'm going. I'm still in a perpetual state of confusion. <laughs> but, but you have a process to sort it out. Eventually, one day, maybe another 15 years. <laughs> do you have rituals? I mean, do you write at a certain time of day or in a certain place or on a computer versus on a typewriter or handwritten? Talk about your writing ritual. So I am not a morning person. My boss can attest to that. (laughs) So it's either at night or weekends. And I don't do it every day because I don't necessarily have ideas every day. I also have, like I mentioned, a job and a life. Um, And cats that you're quite passionate about. Correct. And so here's the other thing. So I'm not a coffee shop kind of writer because I kind of need the silence. More importantly, I need to pace around. I fidget a lot. As you're writing or as you're thinking about writing. Correct. And so I I write in my home office. And you know what's the other thing about a home office? They are supervisors. Oh, (laughs) your cats are your supervisors. Yes. (laughs) They sit there and they watch me and they make sure I get a job done. They're the worst micromanagers on earth. Do you feel judgment from them, or is that all coming from your inside inner critic? Have you seen a cat? Just yes. Like, yeah. I have a cat. I feel the judgment. <laughs> yes. My cat's named Bob. What are your cat's names? Well, I have four. Fuzz, Ginger, Helga, and Sage. Back to the notion of immigration and specifically assimilation. I was struck by this sentence you wrote. There is nothing wrong with assimilation in and of itself, but it should not be a basis for granting civil rights. Can you share your thinking there? So I consider myself assimilated, and I'm sitting here talking to you, for example. Yeah. But I also know that's because English is my first language. You know, I do have a college education. And so when I came to the States, like the main change I had to do was to change from like British spellings to American spellings. I've never been a big ritual person, so right now, like my Chinese New Year tradition is the same as my Christmas tradition, which is cross-country skiing. Okay. And the other thing I've also realized is that, ironically or not, if I hadn't come to the U.S., I don't think I would have been interested in Chinese immigrant history. There was something I became interested in because I'm here and, you know, because I've been exploring these landscapes and these stories and yeah. my own experiences, so... But let's step back and think, what do we mean by assimilation? Because mm-hmm. a lot of it, if it's about learning a new language and customs. 
And in many ways, for many immigrants, it makes our lives easier. And I say, I think this is true in general, not just the U.S., is that it's human nature to relate to people you can understand, both linguistically and culturally. So as an immigrant, like I do want to make myself legible to the mainstream culture here. Blending in, I guess yeah. you could say. Where it becomes a problem is when we deem people we don't understand who are different from us as less than deserving, as less human. Like I said, it's not my personal experience, but you know, I do see it happen. There are immigrants who feel that they have to cut off or hide vital parts of themselves in order to fit in. And that, that becomes a problem. It becomes a problem when, you know, we look at a group of immigrants and we're like, you know, well, they can't speak English. They're not like us, so they shouldn't be here. You know, that's a problem. But wanting to fit in and wanting to be relatable, wanting to be legible, I mean, I think that's a fairly human... Desire. Yeah. I love how you put that legible, to be legible mm -hmm. to someone. Wendy in Denver asks, Tiao, your work is clearly deeply researched but you also go beyond reportage and transform the research into writing with deep emotional resonance. It's a lovely compliment, Wendy. Thank you for that. And so Wendy wonders, what is your relationship to research? It's a perpetual state of confusion. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe confusion in the face of all that you don't know? Yes, Okay, one thing that I like about doing research is, to be honest, my life is not that interesting. So, so when I do research, I can find about other people's interesting lives. Wait, do you think you're boring? I mean, I sit at a desk most of the time. <laughs> and so research gives you access to people who you think are more interesting than you. Yes. But it's not just people, but I think it's stories that are outside myself. And what I've done in Western Journeys and hope to continue doing is to kind of have these stories in conversation with each other, as well as my own experience, not just reportage, but to kind of find more subtle meanings out of it. And how you might identify with it, too. Yes. Mm -hmm. In terms of my research process, it is r research by definition. There's no like one standard process. It's pretty much a black box. And so I kind of follow by intuition some of the things that I do is I do make notes as I go along. Mm -hmm. um, do you write those down? I, I type. You type. Okay, so I do write longhand to figure out what I think. But then when I find something that's interesting or something I think might have potential or anything, I type it up. Uh -huh. Because if everything's in notebooks, I will lose everything. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, and uh, just for the record, I have double uh, backups on my computer. I have cloud and actually two cloud systems. Two cloud systems. Okay. It sounds like you've lost something in the past. Um, I have not. I learned from the experience of other people. <laughs> okay. The nightmare stories. Yes. The thing is when I write things down, it's when I figure out what I know and what I don't. And then I know it's the next question to ask. Aha. Uh -huh. That next... points you to the research. Yes. What are the gaps in my knowledge that mm -hmm. I have to fill? Yes. Okay. And that's also the fact that for me, sometimes I start writing a piece so that to start assembling the information, and again, that's to figure out what I know and what I don't. Nikki in Denver asks, since you moved to Denver and began researching the history of Chinese people in the American West and the atrocities and the injustices they experienced, 
How has it affected your own sense of belonging here? So I don't think of belonging as necessarily a question of safety. Mm-hmm. Because first of all, I think, well, as a woman, you know, the world isn't safe anyway. But I think of belonging as a place where I can kind of be true to myself and rather not, you know, put on kind of a fake facade to face the world. And I mean, I know we all put on facades to some some extent, extent, Mm -hmm. but I feel that this is a place where I can kind of be myself, explore my interests follow all my little research rabbit holes, write books, get them published. This often, though, means, and I want to speak to the part of you that also loves nature and Mm. loves to explore. You are often in spaces, I'm guessing, where there are not many other Asian faces. How is that experience for you? You're talking about in nature? I guess anywhere you go, whether it's a research library in a small town... Or a summit. Yeah. Uh, l- let me address the nature part first. Sure. Is that Chinese and most East Asian cultures do have a landscape tradition. So it's not like we are not used to this. Oh, yes. I don't mean to imply yeah. that yeah. that doesn't belong to you yeah. somehow. Yeah. But just that it may be that you're in spaces where not a lot of other people necessarily look like you. Correct. But I also have a lot of Asian friends who like to go out into nature and stuff. So I'm not usually not the only one. Uh-huh. Um, but to that point is, let's say I know there's a lot of anti-Asian prejudice going on now and violence even. The pandemic, of course, fueled that even further. Yes. I mean, I will be honest. I haven't experienced it directly, personally. But I, I present as someone who can blend in and no one really notices that, oh, there's this Asian person here. You feel that you, you don't stick out somehow. Yeah. Okay. So, and I, don't, I can't say what exactly it is, <laughs> but you know, I can just kind of hide in the corner and no one will notice me. But that's not the experiences necessarily of everyone in your circle. Yes, and definitely not of all the stories we hear in the news. Mm-hmm. This book takes us to so many places, Mesa Verde, Monument Valley, Rocky Flats. We've mentioned Alcatraz and Angel Island. There is one place you visit that has been transformed, Walden Ponds in Mm -hmm. Boulder. And I wasn't aware of them, so forgive my ignorance. What does Walden Ponds represent to you? So I'll I'll say what it is first. It is a, a wildlife habitat in northeast Boulder. It was a former gravel mine that was reclaimed as wetlands. And it's not nature in the sense of, you know, the pure, majestic, you know, Rockies. Pristine, yeah. untouched. It's not. It's next to a wastewater treatment plant. I think there are railroad tracks somewhere. <laughs> you know, you can see all the small planes from Boulder County Airport come and go. But it's also a great place to go bird watching in the spring because they dug the gravel pits. And so they became wetlands. And uh-huh. so all the birds come in the spring. And it's a kind of a quiet place to stroll and observe nature. And the name is Walden Ponds. It is an obvious reference to Thoreau. Uh-huh. The county planning report actually references Thoreau, so you know that they were thinking of him. They didn't just pull it out somewhere. But, I mean, if you think about what Thoreau wrote and what Walden Ponds in Boulder is, it's nature as part of our everyday lives instead of a vacation destination, you know, mm-hmm. like Yellowstone. Or even I know Rocky Mountain National Park is my weekend life, but, you know, for many people, it's a, It's a vacation destination. And I feel that sometimes in these quieter spaces, in these spaces where 
you're not so like, wow, that's, that's a really good view kind of place. It's a space to learn how to observe nature. Tiao, thank you so much for chatting with me and for all the journeys you took us on. Thank you for having me. Denver author Tiao Lim Go. I'm really excited to go to Walden Ponds. We chose her book, Western Journeys, for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. And sticking with our focus today on Chinese Americans, I want to tell you about a powerful mural that's about to go up in what used to be Denver's Chinatown. The artist is Nali Lore, who lives in Thornton. I incorporated the railroad uh, since that's what a lot of Chinese immigrants first worked on when they came here. And it's a lifelong noodle that kind of transforms into the railroad if you look at it a certain way, or it could be the railroad turning into the noodle, kind of going that back and forth. Yeah. And the noodle is important to you. Why? It represents longevity. Not all Chinese Americans or Chinese people eat long life noodles for their birthdays or New Year's or things like that. But I really liked that it signified this hope for a long life. And so I'm really hoping that message comes across well in the image. In April, Laura will begin painting on a wall of a Denver fire station at 19th and Lawrence. Her piece was chosen by the group Colorado Asian Pacific United. She hopes to finish by summer, at which point the vivid colors will pop. I was looking to... um my cultural heritage clothing, I'm Hmong, and a lot of our clothing is very bright, very beautiful, and somehow they make it work. You know, it's pink, lime green, purple, blues, and it works. And I have to make this work somehow. Bright colors make people happy. They make people reminisce about the good times and also bring this bright future ahead with it, too. You've never done a mural before. No. What are the challenges <laughs> to it? Um... Everything. (laughs) You know, it's a very big piece. It's going to be on brick, and I've never really worked on brick. I've done some testing for this, but of course I haven't done it in a large scale like that. You know, it's also having to consider the weather since it's going to be outside, um, as well as the paints to choose and how to transfer my little image onto something bigger. Artist Nali Lore, who will start painting her mural soon in what used to be Denver's Chinatown. See what it will look like at CPR.org slash Colorado Matters. I'll throw that photo up there later today. All right, a quick break, and then there's someone I'm really excited for you to meet. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. For the first time in many years, Denver voters will choose a new mayor. That's just one of the many things on Denver's ballot. Everything a Denverite needs to know before ballots are due April 4th, all in the 2023 election guide at denverite.com. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We tell stories from every corner of the state, and now we'll have more help with that. Let's welcome Colorado Matters' new Western Slope producer, Tom Hess. Hi, Tom. Howdy, Ryan. You will join CPR's Western Slope reporter, Stina Sieg, in our Grand Junction office on Main Street. You are no stranger either to the West or Western Colorado, are you? No, I've actually been in Grand Junction the last four years. I've been at the Grand Junction Daily Sentinel. Uh, I've got Colorado ties. I'm originally from Wyoming, but my parents are in Jackson County now. They live in the vaunted moose viewing capital of Colorado. Oh, yes, near Walden. That's right, yes, for all your moose viewing needs. And... (laughs) 
I'm used to the area. I'm used to all the back highways and the things that make Western Colorado what it is. You were city editor at the Daily Sentinel in Grand Junction. Indeed, you have a, a newspaper background, but you racked up public radio experience in Alaska. That's right. I was at the Sitka Daily Sentinel to start my career in Southeast Alaska. Fans of late aughts romantic comedies right, might remember Sitka as the setting of The Proposal featuring Ryan Reynolds and Sandra Bullock. Okay. But, <laughs> yes. But while I was working there, there was an excellent public radio station there. Alaska has a tremendous public radio tradition because that was the best way to do news for a lot of those very rural parts of Alaska. And yes. The staff there kindly brought me in and taught me about the ethos of community radio and what public radio could mean. And ever since then, I've always wanted to join radio. It took took another six years or so in print before I could finally make the switch. Here you are. I am. And that was at KCAW, correct? Yes, Raven Radio in Sitka, Alaska. Raven Radio in Sitka. Do you have a favorite story or memory from that time? I do. I fell in love with community reporting in Alaska. Alaska is great because it's this huge state, but it's this very tight-knit community. And a story I think about all the time there is in Sitka, there is a state-run boarding school that is essentially, if you're from a really rural village that maybe doesn't have a high school or has very limited high school offerings, you can go to Mount Edgecombe High School in Sitka, Alaska and do your high school experience there. And I would broadcast their basketball games so that families could hear across the state. And in what I thought was a totally unrelated situation, we were covering a fisheries management council. This is an incredibly dense, tedious issue that deals with one of the most important fisheries in the world. Think the Alaska version of like the Colorado River yes, Compact. Right. And I was trying to do this reporting on it and a man heard me talking, a man from Savunga. Savunga is a little Yupik fishing village that is on an island between Alaska and Russia in the Bering Sea. It is out there. Hmm. And he tapped me on the shoulder and he said, I know you. You broadcast Mount Edgecombe High School basketball. <laughs> You're the basketball. Yes, and announcer. this is this is 1,200 miles away from Sitka. This would be like if somebody from Atlanta said, "Ryan Warner, I heard you on that slopper piece about the Pueblo Burger." Aha. This was a demonstration of just how tight knit things are. Now, one of your hobbies before we go is well, it's called pond skimming, and this actually landed you in a story that our own Stina Sieg reported last year. Yeah, so pond skimming is a tradition that ends all the ski seasons at most major resorts and even the little tiny ones. And they create an artificial pond and you just have to try and ski across. It's an exercise in physics and inertia, but it's it's very costumed. It's festooned all over the place. People dress up for the occasion. And it's just, it's the Send off of the ski season. You're trying to turn snow skiing into water skiing very temporarily. Yes. And this past year that Steena reported on, I was at Powderhorn Mountain Resort doing my first pond skim. Tom Hess is dressed for the occasion in a floor-length white tunic with a red sash, his long hair framing his bearded face. Jesus on skis. And there's the whole walks on water parallel that is a bad look for me if I don't make it. So it's going to be a tough hang if I don't get across. How'd you do, Tom? I made it. Just barely. Aha. Congratulations. And welcome. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Tom Hess is our new Colorado Matters producer on the Western Slope. He'll be based in our office on Main Street in Grand Junction.
And that is our show for today, with special thanks to our crew for Turn the Page, Irvin Coffey, Rachel Estabrook, Pedro Lumbrano, Kayla Montoya-Monzo, Justin Peacock, Clara Shelton, and Brittany Wurgis. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Have a lovely weekend.